Well, if you open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5 and going through verse 11. And the title is, It's Time for a Change. Now, if we are honest with God and honest with ourselves, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to repeat an answer out loud. But is there anything that you would choose to change about yourself? Now, we want true change. It requires more than just pie-in-the-sky thinking. True change requires action. For example, I have the desire to lose weight. I want to lose 20 pounds. That means I have to change my eating habits and my exercising habits and my attitudes about food. Without those changes... The weight will never come off, and if it does come off by some miracle, it won't stay off. There's no miracle cure. I can think about losing weight all day long, but until I actually do it and change my habits and my thinking and what I do, it will never happen. That's just an example. Now let us consider our walk, our life with Christ for a moment. Are you content? Are you satisfied where you are in your relationship with Christ? You've given your life to Him. You've heard about this new life you're supposed to have. But yet there seems nothing has really changed. Oh, there's been a few changes here and there, but you hear people talk and give testimony. You hear preachers preach and you're thinking, why can't I? I want that. How come there's no been bad English there? Why hasn't there been any change? What we're getting at, there's no sanctification. In other words, we're no closer to Christ this week than we were last week. Because as a Christian, we're supposed to be growing in our relationship, this process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ every day. The text this morning reminds us that we need to live differently than what we did before. It urges a positive line of self-control that is opposed to indulgence. Urges a lifestyle that is consistent with Christ Himself. If we're going to live our life with Christ in relationship to Him the way He desires, then it's time for a change. Not by being passive, or waiting for it to happen, but for intentional and deliberate change, both personal in our walk, but also as a church. So let's look at the text this morning, starting in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed 
to true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your written word this morning. Help us be attentive and only hear but apply your truth to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look what he says first. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now the Holman Christian translation puts it this way. Put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. Literally in the Greek it would read this way. Put to death the members which are upon the earth. Now the first question I came to my, to my mind is, as a believer we have died with Christ. Why did Paul give this commandment? Your death with Christ and your raised with Christ, that's a spiritual reality. But putting that to work, living that out, requires for us to choose to live consistently with our spiritual experience. If I have truly died with Christ, raised with Him, and walking with Him, there should be a difference. Now, salvation doesn't require anything. There's no works that you can do to earn your salvation. So works are not a, a way to obtain salvation, but they're, they, re, they are a result of your salvation. In other words, as you get a relationship with Christ, there should be some difference. Because He's making the change in you. Now the Holy Spirit's not discussed directly in the book of Colossians, but that power does come from the church ministering effectively to itself, members serving and encouraging other members. And you see that later in verses 15 through 17. And I see it happen here in this church. I've seen each of you in some form or fashion minister and encourage to each other. You know, one thing I, I'm happy about this, don't prove me wrong here in a few minutes when we leave this service, but you guys like to hang out and talk to each other after service. I have yet to see someone literally just get up out of the pew and run towards the back door and get out of here. You guys generally do care about each other. You want to talk and visit. That's obvious. And it blesses my heart that you guys are encouraging and you're blessing each other. But getting back to our text, it says, put to death that points to a decisive initial act, a settled attitude, if you will. Now, these members are not referring to your arms and your legs and your eyes, etc., because your legs and arms and eyes and mouth can be used for good things or bad things. But it comes down to the context of your earthly body. So what he's getting at, once again, getting back to the heart, the motivation, the practices and the attitudes of the body's activity and strength. What are they devoted to? It's not just the physical body, but once again, we're getting at the whole personality, the will. And this is not the same thing as mortification of the flesh. Not self-inflicted pain or abstaining for what someone enjoys. Not an attempt through pain and absence to gain control over the body or to acquire any sort of merit. It's about a transformation of the will. A new attitude of mind. A radical shifting of the center of personality from self to Christ. A death to selfishness by no means is a too strong description. We are all by our nature. We're very self-centered, self-serving. Our faith with Christ teaches us we need to lay that down. 
quit thinking about self and devote ourselves to Christ. Live our lives out centered on Him. So consider everything dead. It calls for a new nature. And by the way, you can't do that on your own. You, you, as hard as you may try, you can't have that true change. And I said this last week, we as society are so concerned on the outside. We want to dress up, wear good clothes and fix ourselves and fix our hair. We always look on the outside of things. We try to pass all these laws. And laws are good, but laws don't change people's hearts. The law of God did not change our heart. It pointed to the fact that we need a Savior. God knew the only way we could change our will and change our heart was by giving His Son Christ. So when we become a follower of Christ and give our lives to Him, now we have a new nature. We embrace the things of God. Look what he says. Consider him dead to what? Immorality, literally fornication, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire and greed. These are outward manifestations from the inward cravings of the heart. Immorality, literally fornication. The Greek word there is pornea, which we get our English word pornography from. It includes every type of unlawful sexual intercourse, extramarital affairs, including all sorts of sexual impurities, denotes any kind of illegitimate sexual intercourse. Or pornea, it's not just adultery. It has anything to do with pornography. Looking at pornography, which has become a huge problem in our society, even among us as pastors. There has been people in the news, pastors, where the secretary has gone to turn on the church computer and poop a picture of pornography shuts up. And guys, the minute we think we're above it, we better watch ourselves. I personally have stuff on my computer to keep me from that. I don't go messing with it, but I want that protection because the temptation is real. We live in a very sexual charged society. You see it everywhere. Keep that in mind. Because when we look at immorality, it's not just talking about adulterous affair. There's many other things that go into it. And that, let's not forget, I'm speaking to the men right now. Well, I've never cheated on my wife, but Jesus said if you look at another with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Just keep that in mind. Impurity, moral uncleanness. And it's used frequently with pornea to denote sexual immoral, uh, excuse me, immoral sexual conduct. Behavior that's driven by actions of one committed to his or her natural lusts. And it's easy to converts to slip back into pre-conversion ways. Of course, passion denotes shameful passion, which leads to sexual excesses. And here's one, evil desire. Now, desire in and by itself is not necessarily bad. Desire can be positive. For example, someone desiring to see a Christian congregation. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, for all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Another example of desire being positive, a desire to depart and be with Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. However, look in the text, it's very obvious that desire is being modified by the adjective evil. 
In other words, it's a manifestation of sin which dwells within. It has control. And when that has control of your heart, it's going to then dictate your behavior. Greed, a desire to have more, and that can't have sexual overtones to it. It normally refers to the unquenchable desire to lay hands on material things. And the New Testament warns us about using this as security. We live in a very materialistic world. It's almost like who dies with the most toys wins. But I have yet to see a U-Haul behind a hearse going to the cemetery, although I've seen pictures on Facebook about that. But we put a lot of stock in material possessions in this country and money. The New Testament warns us about this. In Luke chapter 12, 15 and following, a man has so much stuff. What am I going to do with all my stuff, he says. I'm paraphrasing. I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I can put it in bigger barns. I can sit and relax and be merry and have a good time. But in verse 20 and 21, God says this to the man. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You ever notice when you're driving around how many self-storage areas we have in this country? We have so much stuff, we have to rent a storage unit to store more stuff. I moved in the last five years. We've moved three times. And I went to the dump at least ten times and gave stuff away. And I still had too much stuff. We had boxes that we carried from Springtown to East Texas back to Forestburg, still taped. We never opened them. I said, Tammy, this is stupid. Let's throw them away. We'll come to find out. I think some of our high school annuals are in that box. But the point being, we're, we're hauling this box around, but yet apparently what's ever in it was not important to us. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's necessarily a bad thing to want you know, a nice house and nice clothes and things of that nature, but there's no security that can be wiped out. If 2020 has not taught us anything else, it told us how temporary things are in this world. It can be taken away in a blink of an eye. We have so many people in our country, in around the state, in, in our community, that are hurting. They're unemployed. They can't find jobs. All this stuff's happening. The only true security that we have, the only real hope that we have, it's founded in Christ. A temptation says, don't do that. Temptation to abuse position. Exploit the preaching of God for personal gain. There was a, I'm not going to mention any names, there was a preacher some years ago. He was smoking a cigar, and the camera would be on him, and then he would stop and he would fold his arms and say, I'm not going to say another word till I get $50,000. Here's the shocking thing. He would actually get the $50,000. God help me if I ever stand in the pulpit and say, I'm going to do this, or God's telling me to do, telling you to do this. Using the pulpit or the preaching of God's word for personal gain, that's what it's about. Even when I stand in the pulpit as a preacher, I should be dying to self. Not what Tim wants. It's not Tim's opinions. It's not Tim's agenda. It's all about God and his word. If I stop preaching the Word of God, and it stops being preaching. It's no more than self-motivation or hurrah speech. If you're going to be a preacher, you have to preach the Word of God. 
The danger of greed is stressed emphatically and is closely related to idolatry. Look what it says in the text, which is a form of idolatry. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Don't you use wealth as a form or an object of worship. And we have a real problem with that in our country. It's the almighty dollar. And when you stop and look at some of what's going on in our country, you can boil it down to one thing. Money. And power. But mostly money. People are after. But you either going to serve God or serve the other. You can't do both. And I'm going to date myself. I've said this before. The movie Karate Kid. Everybody see that movie? The original Karate Kid, not the remake. He tells his student, Daniel, called Daniel's son, you walk on the left side of the road, you're okay. Walk on the right side of the road, you're okay. But you walk down the middle of the road, squish, just like grape. Even Hollywood gets it right somewhat. It's true. As a Christian, we can't, we can't straddle the fence. It can't be done. That's why churches have problems. That's why so many Christians have problems. We're trying to put one foot in the world and one foot in church. It doesn't work. When you realize all what the Bible says and look at what our society is doing. We're crying out because people are dying of COVID. Yes, COVID is bad. It's terrible. We should protect all life from conception to natural death. The words you cry out for the, the unborn who are murdered up to 3,000 a day or the elderly who are being mistreated in the nursing homes and such. Where's the cry out for that? This is an example. You need to stay focused now. And he goes on to say a causal statement, for it's because of these things we just listed that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That is a serious warning of God's judgment on those who practice these vices. A solemn reminder to the Colossians and to us what will happen if we continue to live in them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, infamous, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we have people out there running around talking about, well, God is mercy, God is forgiven. He'll let all these people live. No, He will not. The only way you get in the kingdom of God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And right here, not my words, look for yourself, 1 Corinthians 6. And that goes directly against what you're hearing a lot of popular preaching going on out there in the world. Because we must realize and understand that a holy God will not stand by when men and women act unrighteously and break moral law or break the law. He acts in a righteous manner, punishing sin wherever it's found. But yet at the same time, God acquits the guilty. That's why we come to Christ, we experience the grace of God through His Son Christ. That's why we have a song called Amazing Grace, because that's exactly what it is. I'm guilty of breaking everything, but because of my faith in Christ, dying with Christ, raised with Christ, all because of Christ, I've experienced the grace of God, and I can sing along with, in that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like, 
wrench like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because it comes down to these two things. To understand his great mercy, you must consider his great wrath. And to consider to understand his great wrath, you must consider his great mercy. And you see that played out on the cross of Christ. You see the mercy and graces of God by offering a sin sacrifice for all mankind once and for all, but you also see the wrath of God being poured upon Jesus, bearing the, the punishment that we deserve upon Himself. All happening on the cross. In them, He says, you also once walked. Outward behavior corresponds with established attitudes and sentiment. All these things remind them and reminds of us of our pre-Christian past. This is exactly why change must happen. I told Larry, I think yesterday, even today, that there's a lot of people at the airport who knew me before I was a Christian. And I was always been one of my anxieties to look out one day and see three rows of fleet service clerks from American Airlines. Well, they could tell some stories on me. But by the grace of God, they can also say they've seen some change. It's not because Tim just woke up wanting to change. That's God. That's God changing me. That's me responsive to God. And some of you sitting in these pews go, well, I can never do what you do. I can never teach. I can never witness. Oh, you're exactly right. On your own, you can't. But if you respond to God's calling, He'll give you what you need. And He'll walk you through that process. As I've said before, I've said a thousand times, so I'm blue in the face. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He says, put these things aside. You must rid yourselves of these things. Discard their old repulsive, disgusting habits like a set of worn out clothes. Put aside everything that was done in connection with the old man. This is implicit, although that's not really mentioned until verse 9. So you have anger and wrath. Anger can lead to hate, but wrath is more of an outburst of emotion. You ever gotten mad at your spouse and said something maybe you shouldn't have said? You ever been in a situation where you're saying something and you hear it come out of your mouth and going, oh, you want to take it back? That's what it means to have that wrath. It's that acting and emotion. Now, one thing I've learned about my wife, I'm getting a little sidetracked, bear with me. She wants to sit and talk everything out. Doesn't necessarily want a resolution. Let's just talk it out. Me, when I get upset and mad, I have to leave the room. And I used to drive her up the wall. She chased me around, would make me even more madder. She has learned over the years, hey, I got to go cool off before I say something stupid. And that's, you know, married to your spouse for a while, you figure those things out. I have to calm down and think about it because you can get to that point where you're so mad or so angry that there is a temptation. You'll just say something out in outburst. You don't want that to happen. Stay away from that. Now, it does tell us we can be angry, yet do not sin in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. But it also says this in that verse, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And he's quoting Psalm 4, 4. If you have any anger issues towards anybody, it's telling us you need to take care of that before you go to sleep. The longer you let that sit there. You remember the old, you can do it with a plastic. You ever have a bottle of Coke or whatever you like to drink? We don't deal with our anger issues. 
It's like shaking that bottle up. And we don't take the cap off. It just sits there. The pressure is building. And some of that help out, we shake it again. That's what happens to us. And then something so small that shouldn't bother us, it just all comes out and sprays all over the place. Another word he uses here is malice. That's not just doing something evil against another human being. That's really being intent about it, coming up with a plan, uh, how to do some harm, sometimes even planning to murder somebody. Slander or defamation or blasphemy. Now, in some cases, it's, it's talking about speaking against God and His representative. But it also means abuse or slander. The context is indicating here that it's about defamation of human character. It covers any type of gossip or slandering somebody's good name. I've heard this said before. We don't gossip. We just share prayer requests. It shouldn't be the case. We should never gossip. We should never talk bad about anybody. Because look what he says next. Abusive speech. Filthy language from your mouth. Obscene or foul speech. That's including but not limited to profanity. Such language needs to be stopped before it comes out of our mouth. And we find this in the New Testament. The tongue is so small but yet it can do so much damage in a blink of an eye. And speaking about the tongue, look what the next phrase is. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside, put off the old self. He's kind of glooping all these together. He said, you shouldn't act this way. You've laid the old person down. You're, you're now a new creature. You shouldn't be doing these things. And by the way, the context does not suggest that this should only happen among believers. It says, do not lie to one another. It's not limited just Christians to Christians, but everybody. In fact, some people take it out, they talk about swearing, so do not swear. Well, the reason that's in the New Testament is because we're supposed to be people of our word, that when we say, I promise to tell the truth, when we speak, we're speaking the truth, and no one would question us if we're lying or not, because, hey, he's a, he's a believer in Christ, and what he says goes. We used to have such a thing. I give you my honor and my word, and things were done on a handshake, but that's gone bye-bye. But we should be as God's people should know that our yes means yes and our no means no. Put on the new self, he says, who is being renewed to true knowledge. Being renewed, continuous actions, constantly ongoing, never ceases. And this is done according to the image of the one who created him. Not just individual change, but corporate change. To a true knowledge. By the way, in Greek, there's no indefinite article. This renewal is a continued increase in true knowledge, increase in the ability to recognize God's will and command, lead to conduct that conforms with God's will, and nothing less than the transformation into the image of Christ. Which really comes right full circle where we start about changing something. We should be different today than we were yesterday. We should be different today than we were a month ago, two months ago, or a year ago. And that's true of a church. And every time you hear people talk about church growth, now numbers are important, they do represent people, but hear me well. If you want to see how different of a church is truly growing spiritually, do we look different today than we did this time last year? Do we look different today as a congregation than we did two months ago or a week ago? We should all be changing differently and becoming more and more into the image of Christ. 
And look what he says about this renewal. There is no distinction. It's interesting that he mentions Greeks first. Why would I say that? Because Jews were usually spoke about first because they were first place in salvation history. They were God's chosen people. But look what he says is Greeks and Jews. But in Christ, this old distinction between Jew and Gentile were abolished. Circumcision has lots of meaning. New creation is what really matters. He has a barbarian, a Scythian. A barbarian was a non-Greek person. But the Scythian was even the lowest form of a barbarian. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes him as a little better than wild beasts. He talks about slave and freeman. No distinctions of social position are mentioned. They're, they're irrelevant. Those days, a slave was not a person, but a piece of property, a living tool, as Aristotle would describe them. The slave and free man are about the brothers for whom Christ died. There is no distinction. All of us are the same. That's what he's driving home. Think about for a minute how much society tries to divide us by race, ethnicity, social and economic standing, our background. And we have all these stereotypes that go along with that. Some people believe if you live in a country, you're a little slower than people live in a city. And people in the country sometimes think people live in a city are nothing but stand-up snobbish people. Those are general stereotypes, are they not? But that's not necessarily the case. Some of you are kind of smiling at me with that, but these are stereotypes. And what he's telling us, those all go away in Christ. A more powerful one that you will see, bear with me for a second, is the Good Samaritan. Now he is talking, his original audience, Jesus is talking to, were Jewish. Now back after King Solomon, the kingdom divided over disputation, a dispute over who was going to be the next king. So the kingdom divided. Each kingdom ended up taking over. And some of the Jews intermarried with other people. You had these Samaritans. The Jews saw them as half Jewish. In fact, they looked at them like lower than low. And the feeling was mutual. They actually hated each other. Now keep that in mind. Jesus tells a story about a guy who goes on the Jericho Road. Now that road was well known for robbers and thieves. It'd be like going to the south part of Dallas or somewhere like that. We all know, stay aware there at night, but they, this road was notorious for that. This guy gets robbed, he's beat up, he's left on the side of the road for dead. And a Levite goes by. Here's a guy who knows the law that will help the priests. He sees this guy. What does he do? He doesn't just walk by. If the guy's right here, I mean, he goes way on the other side. He won't be nowhere near this guy. He keeps walking. He then says a priest comes by does the very same thing. Now, can you feel the tension? Because in the Jewish, I can't believe a Levite and priest would do such a thing. And then he says, a Samaritan. When he said that, I can imagine all the oxygen got sucked out of the room, if you will. A no good Samaritan. Yes, he stops. He gives the guy aid. Picks the guy up. Takes him to a place he can get, receive further medical care. And tells the person, I'll take care of his bill. Let me know how much owe you. I'll be back to settle it up. Now, in the context of that story, that parable, 
people ask Jesus, well, who is my brother? Or who is my neighbor? You should love your neighbor as yourself. So that's how he answers that question. This is going to sting. If you want modern day, that person, you're calling that racial slur, either the N-word every one of use for different groups of people that we hear all over the world, that's our brother or our sister. We are to love them as we love ourselves, so much so that we love them that we're going to tell them about the gospel and witness to them. That's the kind of force that has. It's not about just loving people in this room that like us, look like us. It's about reaching across racial lines, about social numbering lines. That doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. The gospel transcends all that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven? But everybody from every nation, tribe, tribe, and tongue is going to be standing there worshiping God. It's going to be a true representation. You won't see everybody there. We're going to be worshiping God. We need, we need to keep that in mind. Just because we're American or whatever it is doesn't give us exclusive rights. And let me just say one more thing. I'm getting a little sidetracked. I'm sorry. I'm proud to be an American. I serve my country, but I'm a Christian first. Just because I'm an American doesn't mean I'm a good Christian. Being a good Christian doesn't necessarily mean I'm a good American. Christ has to have that first place in my life and your life as well. He ends by saying, by, but Christ is all and in all. New Living Translation, Christ is all that matters. Christ is all. He is absolute, absolutely everything. He's all that matters. And in Christ in all, permeates and indwells all the members of the new man, regardless of race, class, or background. It's time for a change. Consider the current events. Consider the year 2020. Not much time is left. What's the basic definition of insanity? You guys heard this before. Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. If there is no change, you will always get what you've always gotten. If your intent is to have faith and a vibrant relationship with God through Christ, Change must definitely take place. It's a continuous action. It never stops. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, you'll never reach a place where you sit down and go, I've done it all. No, there's always something more to learn. And that tension and the confusion, that, that area of your life that's causing you problems right now, I would say that's God telling you, when are you going to let go of that and give it to me? See, it's all about trust. Trusting God with your life and seeking Him in every area of it. It's about pursuing God's agenda, not your own. Are you daily increasing in true knowledge? Are you daily increasing into the image of Christ? Salvation, regeneration comes first. Your faith in Christ, you're regenerated. Now you're justified in the eyes of God through the blood of Christ. Then becomes a process of sanctification that never stops. Until the ultimate glorification, either you die and go beyond the Lord or He comes back and then we're changed and that's glorification. And here's the problem I think a lot of us are having in this room. We desire these things and we're trying on our own to do it. With our own ability. If I can just do this. When are you going to finally lay it down and give it to God 
because you need Christ. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to give it all over to Christ. There's areas in your life right now that you're struggling with because you're trying to do it in your own strength. Dearly beloved, you can never do that. Give it over to Christ. There is freedom in letting go. There's freedom in letting go. But only you can answer that question, what change needs to happen? And then the next question, are you willing to do what it takes? But see, we're self-centered. We're selfish. We want to be in control. Okay, God, I'll give you this, but I want this. Uh, okay, God, I'll give you this, but no. When I first went into the ministry, I'll show you this illustration. I told Tammy, I, I feel called to go into the ministry. because what's that mean? I said, I have no idea. It's walking through that process, me and her together. First, she was like, well, as long as I can keep my job at DFW, okay, I'm with you. It's like going to God and say, okay, I'll answer your call, but stick us in this area. That's all we want to go. Then as time went on, we kept walking through, the, kept walking through and learning and growing, sometimes painfully at times. She made the remark, well, you know what? If I can transfer and keep my job, then we'll go. So as long as she could transfer, which still is limiting God. Until one day, we're driving to work, and out of the clear blue, she goes, you know what? It's time to let go. Whatever God calls us to do, if that means leaving our jobs together, then that's what we need to do. But it took a while for us to get to that point. And I'm speaking from personal experience. If God's calling you, put it down and put it in His hands. He's created you. He knows what's best for you. You know, people worry about getting called to the jungles of Africa. Well, that may or may not happen. But He wants you to be obedient. And trust me when I tell you, I've learned this, and I'm still learning it. It never stops. God will equip you to carry the mission He's calling you to. We've seen this in this church. Have we not? How many times have we prayed, Lord, bring someone here that can do this? And about three months later, boom, there you go. We had COVID hit. But what are we going to do now? Let's have online. How do we do that? God gave us what we needed. People to run it. The blast. I mean, the things go on and on. How are we going to operate? How are we going to, are we going to make it financially? And God has proven Himself faithful time and time and time again. It's always a time for change. Are you willing just to give it all to God? That's what it comes down to. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time we could come together and to walk through Your Word. Father, You've called us out of the dark. You've called us from death into life. Called us from being blind to where we can now see. And Father, I pray that You give each one of us a sense of peace, knowing that You're always with us. 
that you'll never call us to do something without preparing us and being with us all through it. Father, I, I pray that you give people the, the, the courage and the boldness. So much of what we go through, dear God, is us being stubborn, not wanting to let go of control. But Father, our desire as individuals and as a church, we want to become more like Christ. And we know in order to do that, we have to change on a daily basis by reading, applying, praying, living out our faith. So Father, I pray for everyone in this room, everybody in the sound of my voice, as you continue to call to us and convict us, I pray to God that we answer that call. We will continue to follow you. To lay everything down at your feet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me please?